Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, this is episode, what episode? 76, episode 76 of the podcast. So uh, not a new podcast anymore, but for you first-time listeners out there, uh, basically what we try to do on this podcast is uh, I invite an author on to discuss a book of theirs that's been newly published, uh, something we think you, uh, you guys out there would like to hear a discussion about. And then hopefully at the end of the podcast, or even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers, uh, you go out and purchase the book yourself and give it a read. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show, and also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Father Robert Sirico. And Father Sirico is the President Emeritus of the Acton Institute and retired pastor of Sacred Heart of Jesus Catholic Parish and Sacred Heart Academy in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He was ordained a priest in 1989 and received his Master's, Master of Divinity degree from the Catholic University of America, following undergraduate study at the University of Southern California and the University of London. Uh, during his studies and early ministry, he experienced a growing concern over the lack of training religious studies students received in, in fundamental economic principles leaving them poorly equipped to understand and address today's social problems. And as a result of these concerns, he co-founded the Acton Institute with Chris Allen Moran in 1990. Uh, his writings on religious, political, economic, and social matters have been published in a variety of journals, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, the Financial Times, the Washington Times, National Review, and the Detroit News. Uh, he is a member of the prestigious Mont Pelerin Society, uh, the, American Ac uh, the American Academy of Religion, and the Philadelphia Society, and is on the Board of Advisors of the Civic Institute in Prague. Uh, he is the author of many Acton Institute publications, and the author of the book Defending the Free Market, The Moral Case for a Free Economy. And lastly, he is the author of The Economics of the Parables, which was published uh, just a couple of weeks ago by Regnery Gateway, and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Father Sirico, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Tim. Although being on a podcast called Illiteracy uh, <laughs> gave me pause. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's supposed to be a little tongue-in-cheek, but... Uh, I, uh, I get it. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, the book itself, um, before we get to the meat of it, um, just sort of the, the genesis of it, what uh, what made you want to write this book? Uh, what, uh, what led you to it? Well, you know, I've been... You know, a priest all these years and have preached, of course, like any preacher on the parables. Uh, everybody knows the parables, even if they're not particularly religious, if they're just literate people. In fact, one of the first reviews of the book came from a, a Jewish writer of the Boston Globe. Uh, so the parables are familiar devices, uh, pedagogical advice, uh, uh, tools that people use. But at the same time, during that whole, you know, career as a priest, um, I have also been involved in the whole economic world, the free market mm -hmm. world, and discussions on economy. Very often my, my talks are to secular audiences. And I thought what I need is a translation project back and forth, because religious people need to have some eco economic literacy, uh, I think both to enhance their understanding of theology and uh, the real world that they live in. But I think economic uh, people need to understand the moral dimensions and even the roots of economic science because e economics emerges out of moral theology. So I think there's a, a correspondence between the two disciplines and that produced this book, The Parables, which was, I have to say was a joy to write, although it took place over a long period of time. How long did it take you to write it? Well, if you count the first assembling of the parables and the first research that I did with economic footnotes and stuff, I'd say about 10 years or more. Oh, wow. Uh, I've been playing around with the idea, but this is one of the benefits of COVID. <laughs> I finally <laughs> sat down and finished the whole thing, and uh, so that kept me company. Mm -hmm. um, the one thing I wanted to ask you, the book is dedicated... Uh, to Robert J. Powers, uh, who you write as a friend, gentleman, and entrepreneur who embodied the values expressed in this work. Um, yes. Could you tell us a little more about uh, 
Robert Powers and uh, why you dedicated the book to him? Well, thank you for asking that. You know, uh, you're the first reviewer uh, of it that's asked that question. This is a man who I've known for the better part of 30 years. And uh, I met him through his wife who came to some classes that I was teaching at the uh, place that I was in, the parish that I was in. And she said, you've got to come and hear this priest. He's a little unusual. And he did. <laughs> and we, we became friends. Uh, he's an entrepreneur who um, he really embodies in, in a way these parables uh, because he would repeatedly say, you know, I'm not an intellectual. I don't understand these things. But and then he would proceed to say something that had such precision mm -hmm. and economic insight without all the <laughs> academic, uh, you know, jargon with it. And I just became friends with him and his family, and he was a supporter of the work that I, I did in many respects, both the religious side and the uh, the economic side. So um, I miss him. He he died on Holy Thursday two years two Holy Thursdays ago, uh, after he had just visited my home, which was uh, I was preparing for retirement and moved into the neighborhood that he was in four blocks four. Um, houses down from me mm -hmm. he had been uh, air conditioning and heating and he came and looked over the house and wanted to kind of give it his approval it was a mess and so uh, i walked him home it was holy thursday night and he said why don't you come and have a drink i said bob it's holy thursday i've got to work tonight <laughs> and uh, he went and uh, his daughter called me the next morning which was um, holy thursday morning i was the last person he saw Oh, and he died in his chair uh, with the rosary by his side. So, um, uh, so I went to the house immediately, and we prayed with the family. Okay. So I wanted to dedicate to him, and I didn't tell the family until the book was published and gave them a copy of it. Oh wow! Thanks for yeah. that. Oh no problem. I always um, it's always interesting to me. I usually ask authors about that if uh, um, you know. Most times it's normally to like the wife or, or something, but uh, sure. when it's something sure. a little bit unusual, I like to, uh, uh, I mean, we all pretty much, you know, know why you would dedicate the book to your wife. I mean, that's pretty self-explanatory, but sure. for something like that, uh, something out of the ordinary, I always like to ask, it says there's usually um, an interesting story behind it. Uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. Oh, no problem. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> the book itself and, I uh, I kind of found this funny um, because uh, I'm Catholic and uh, you use the uh, the King James version the the, yes. <laughs> the the preeminent Protestant Bible uh, yes. for the translations and the course of the study of the parables instead of you know uh, instead of say the uh, you know the New Revised Standard Version um, now I don't know if this means we're uh, bad Catholics or not, but I also <laughs> uh, I, I I tend to prefer the the King James version um, over the Catholic Bibles. Um, I you know I, I mean maybe that's a, a a venial sin I don't know, but um, uh, <laughs> but uh, why did a why did a Catholic priest use a a, a Protestant Bible <laughs> for this well, book? For, for several reasons. Uh, let me acknowledge you know there are better Bibles for academic research. Sure. In fact, in the course of the writing of the book and even references in the book, I do refer to other translations. But as a kid in New York, I used to go to black churches and hear gospel songs and uh, hear the preachers who inevitably uh, use the King James Version. Beautiful, beautifully presented, majestic recitations from the King James Bible. And I just thought that the majesty of the King James Bible matches the majesty of the parables. It it brings out their their dramatic nature. And so I wanted to use that. And it's a tongue twister uh, when, uh, you know, doing these interviews to promote the book. Uh, it's funny, you know, you have these very uh, literate, <laughs> pardon the expression, uh, uh, interviewers who then read a passage and kind of get their tongue all tied and knotted, oh, sure, yeah. uh, 
which is natural. I mean, this is Elizabethan English. This is Shakespearean English. And a lot of people are turned off by it. I'm not. I was a literature major mm-hmm. in my undergraduate work. And so I, I love the language. And that's why I thought it was a nice opportunity to do it. Uh, also, we didn't have to deal with copyrights. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely an easier Bible to read than it is to uh, speak aloud. Uh, yeah. That's for sure. But I'm with you on the on the on the beauty of its uh, cadences and its rhythms and um, the, the older Catholic versions. I mean, the Douay Reims has yes. a similar majesty as yeah. well. But I thought that was too specifically Catholic, and I thought this would <laughs> open up a broader ecumenical audience. Yeah, that's the other thing too. It's it's um, it's hard to. I mean, so many uh, phrases from the King James version have uh, just sort of seeped into. Uh, you know, English vernacular that um, sure. if you, if you don't, if you, if you don't know the King James version, it's very hard to consider yourself a culturally literate person. You, you wouldn't get the, the little puns in Shakespeare right. or lots of literature for that matter. The, the word talent, you know, what we use today is a, you know, a gift, a, an ability that somebody has comes from the King James Bible. It's mm-hmm. the parable of the talents, and I, I handle that in there. There's so much in the phrases and that we've adapted and just made colloquial. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay, uh, well, uh, moving on, I guess, uh, to the meat of the book itself. Uh, uh, what, uh, I guess, explain to everyone, what are the parables, and uh, what, what distinguishes parable from from pure allegory well parables are obviously jesus didn't invent the form of the parable because they existed although he he really shows his jewishness and is an employment uh, of the parables but parables are distinguished from allegory in that they deal with real life and i think this also speaks to why they're so durable, why they just kind of keep going down through the ages. Um, allegories would deal with fantasy, but parables deal with, with uh, you know, wage disputes and um, legacies and inheritances and fields and the discovery of fine pearls and different things that we in our own lives, even today, now down 2,000 years from when he spoke them, uh, we can get into, we can understand. So uh, it's, it also, and any rhetorician that is a priest or, or a speaker, a public speaker, uh, or even the popularity of stories now mm-hmm. in, in uh, common use on radio and things, really show the force of the telling of a story rather than just didactically enumerating facts. Uh, when I preach, uh, the greatest compliment I get is when somebody comes out of the church, let's say a five-year-old, <laughs> and tells me they like the story that I told, and they you know, get some of the points of it. And then they're followed up by a scientist or a medical doctor or a lawyer who says the same thing. And it tells me, it's kind of like, I don't know if you remember the old Muppets. Not oh, the of course. New Muppets, no, yeah, yeah. I'm a, I'm a huge Muppet fan. My, my, son, my, uh, my two-year-old son, I've got, I've got him watching the old, it's on Disney Plus now, the old Muppet show. Exactly. So, yeah, exactly. I have him, yeah. Let me confess to you that I have had a crush on Miss Piggy for many, <laughs> many years, really. I don't know if it's a cleavage or not, but I mean, she's just... <laughs> <laughs> captivated uh, when it was on but you, you just indicate what is it you like about watching it with your son you you like the fact that you're both laughing but yeah. you're laughing at different things yeah and i i think you know the commentators by what was it stratford and hilton is that what uh Walt uh, Sta- uh, Wald- waldorf and uh, uh waldorf. stafford and waldorf stafford and waldorf <laughs> It's just, and what Jesus is doing in using these stories is he's able to speak across time and across class and even culture. So that's that's mm-hmm. what a parable is. Yeah, my well, my son started out with uh, Sesame Street, you know, and 
one of the great things about having the, all these streaming services now, which I have all of them. Uh, HBO Max has like all of the uh, old Sesame Streets on there from like the late '60s and all throughout the '70s and the '80s and '90s. So there's, you know, uh, hundreds you of hours, really of, hundreds of hours of, of Sesame Street with, uh, you know, the ep where when Jim Henson was still alive. Right. Um, right. And he and Frank Oz are, you know, this amazing uh, oh. comedic duo. Uh, oh, you know, yeah, working together, right. but but so then from Sesame Street, I was like, well, Sesame Street has Muppets, and the Muppet Show has Muppets, so and, and Kermit is on both shows, so he's familiar with Kermit, so that that sort of sucked him into uh, the Muppet Show. Um, so I I feel like I've done um, uh, my fatherly duty as a as, as a Muppet fan, and getting my uh, my yeah. son all into the all into the Muppets, so. Uh, but yeah, like I said, it's great just to, to, to be able to have this whole um, archive, this <laughs> library of, of stuff of yeah. kids shows out there for for kids to watch. So um, anyway, more on topic. Uh, enough about my kid and Muppets. Um, <laughs> so did <laughs> uh, did the Savior did. Did Jesus Christ intend to communicate economic lessons in the parables themselves? I mean, do we know? I mean, can we tell uh, if that was one of his uh, one of his goals? goals? Yes, for doing so. No, no I don't think so. I, I think uh, the way I would put it is that he presumes certain human norms mm-hmm. and. That's the whole point of my approach to economics. You know, my approach to economics is not mathematical. It's not abstractions. It's human action. And the reality, the economic reality of human life precedes the intellectual categorization of economics as a a discipline. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, I don't think Jesus is teaching. And some uh, more fundamentalist approaches to Scripture would say, yes, this is the scriptural teaching on economics. So this is Christian economics. That's never been my approach. I think that economics is a reality that emerges from human scarcity and the, the fact that we have to survive and, in effect, tend the garden. You know, it's interesting that in the imagery of Genesis, you don't have God placing man and woman in a jungle, right. but in a garden. And the difference between a garden and a jungle is the garden needs tending to help be productive. And the jungle just is there, you know. Uh, some people today are advocating we go back to a jungle. They resent the garden. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm not of that sort. And so I think that what Jesus is doing is taking the reality of human life, the common reality of human life, which, by the way, is what gives the parables their enduring quality, that he can speak uh, in, in imagery that applies even now, even if we don't, from time to time, we have to understand some of the, the cultural norms of the period, like with inheritance laws and things like that. But no, I don't think he's teaching economics as such, but I think there's an economic presumption. Mm-hmm. For example, the, um, the pearl of great price. Mm-hmm. This is the story where the man uh, discovers, he's a merchant, he discovers this pearl that is exquisite. He loves it. He wants it more than anything. And he goes and sells everything he has in order to obtain it. Of course, it's a metaphor for the kingdom of God, for commitment to the cause of Christ. But isn't it interesting that Jesus is using the imagery of a luxury good, uh, which has no no use other than its beauty? Uh, you can say, well, uh, you know, if you're just a materialist, you know, just you know, it, it has no usefulness. If you're no a utility, yeah. yeah, no utility. Um, and yet, Christ holds this up as an image for the kingdom of God. And it shows right there that he's not prejudiced against luxury goods as such. Mm-hmm. You know, his condemnation repeatedly, and you see this, once you begin to just take the parables on their own, you see that he's not projecting an economic policy. 
he's not condemning markets. He's not yeah. condemning private property. He's not condemning wealth. Uh, what he's doing is pointing to something higher. Right. Yeah. Um, on that, on that note, um, you know, people more on, on the, on the left end of the spectrum or some of them, not all of them, they have a habit of, you know, pulling quotes from the Bible, uh, out of context in, yeah. Well, I mean, well, they're not unique in that. I mean, people on the right do that too. But you know, but sure. they'll pull the, but they pull these quotes and say like, "Aha! See, Jesus was a socialist," or, or, right. or see, Jesus condemns the rich. You know, uh, woe, uh, woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Or, or you know, it's a, it's easier right. to for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, yeah. Or the example of Jesus throwing the money changers from the temple. You know, the cleansing in the temple. You know, that right. shows he disdains commerce or disdains economic exchange. Uh, but as you say, that's not quite true. I mean, the biblical warnings about wealth are not warnings against ownership, uh, per se, but more against possessiveness and... and idolatry. And idolatry, yes. And, and, and Jesus, or anybody in Christianity, really, has never taught uh, that wealth is evil. I mean, avarice is a sin... But not, exactly. but not wealth. So, exactly. No, yeah. in the latter part of the book, um, I I go through. In fact, there's a large closing chapter mm -hmm. um, that that deals with economic issues in the rest of the New Testament, and even there, it isn't exhaustive. That are not parables. Yeah. Uh, and I handle each of those that you just enumerated there, the, the cleansing of the temple. or the, the, Take the rich man uh, who, to, who gives the rise to Jesus' statement about the camel and the eye of the needle. Everybody who has that image in their mind immediately says, oh, well, see, Jesus is calling this man to repent of his wealth. Uh, <laughs> he's calling him to repent of commerce. And yet, if you ask somebody, what is the first thing Jesus says to him when he calls him? They won't remember what it is. He says, go and sell all that you have. Sell all that you have. In commanding him to engage in commerce. And then give to the poor. Doesn't even say, give it all to the poor. But let's say he says, even, even if he says, give it all to the poor. The purpose is that you make a profit on what you sell, and that represents your service to those who are in need, and then come and be my disciple. Uh, but that's completely missed, because when you go at the Scripture with this blinder on, mm -hmm. that somehow wealth is evil, uh, you're going to miss that. Uh, I, I think somewhere in the book I, I enumerate the seven deadly sins, you know, the, the classic sins about greed and lust and pride and envy. Gluttony, yeah. Gluttony, but it's not those things are not uh, it's not money that's being condemned. It's greed. It's not sex, but lust. It's not uh, success, but pride. It's not admiration, but envy. It's not anger, but wrath. And it's not leisure, but sloth. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's very instructive. Uh, and it's it's not enjoying a good meal, but as you say, it's gluttony. It, and all of those, what's the difference between the two is one is a moderate enjoyment of a good, and the other is a disordered passion that is really a form of idolatry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. Um, I guess let's... God, we've already gone 25 minutes. Um, <laughs> let's move on to some of the... People People might have to read the book. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, let's move on to some of the parables themselves. And again, they're, as you said before, they're economic uh, presuppositions. Um, let's start with the parable of the talents, uh, because uh, you write in the book, this is the, this is the parable you were most often requested to comment on. So uh, what is the lesson here? What is the lesson of the parable of the talents? Well, I think, the, 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 of course, the lesson, uh, what Jesus is teaching us, is uh, the kingdom of God. Again, mm -hmm. you know, it's not about the uh, economics of it, but the kingdom of God. And 
this is the story, of course. It, it occurs several places in the New Testament, but I take it from Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus goes and has, uh, or the the master goes uh, and has three servants and entrusts to them five, two, and one talent each, respectively. It's interesting that at the beginning of the whole story, he says, and he gives each according to their ability. <laughs> so we need to say right at the beginning that the failure of the last one, who was so severely judged, isn't because he didn't have the capacity. That's He removes that from the table so subtly, mm-hmm. right from the beginning. That's not the issue. And I think probably the greatest, to be succinct here, the greatest insight from my vantage point on the economic level uh, is to see the way this last uh, person uh, who is entrusted with one talent reacts. Note that he doesn't lose the talent that he's given. You know, it's not like he comes back and says, you know, I misplaced it. Uh, He buries it. And the reason he buries it, he tells the the master. He said, I knew, and here we get his perspective of who he's dealing with. I knew that you were a hard man, <laughs> reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered. And as I read that from my knowledge of, of economics, it sounded very similar to the reaction that uh, Marx, Engels, the left has to economic creativity, to investment, to profit, the assumption that profit is axiomatically exploitative, mm. that people who earn profits do it because they have, they have gathered, but they have not scattered. They haven't sown, but they have reaped. And this is the, uh, this man's attitude toward the master. And the response of the master to that is kind of almost mockingly. You can just hear the sarcasm in his voice. Oh, yeah, you knew that I was a hard man and I gather where I had my scat and all the rest of it. He said, then why didn't you just take my money and invest it? Leave it with the bankers. At least I would have had the profit from the interest Mm. on the loan. So my point is, you see, the whole backdrop of this, the whole assumption of this, not not the economic teaching of it, but the assumption of it is that banking and profit and exploitation, all of this comes into play in a way that we can appreciate the the sophisticated uh, sophistication on the part of Jesus with regard to economics. Um, and then he he gets his uh, the, the the one who has hidden the money out of fear. That's another very important point. In the market, for people to make a profit, they have to have some courage, or what we call risk. Uh, you, you don't know if you're going to lose what you invest. What would have been interesting, and you can do this kind of mental exercise with a number of these parables. In this one, what would be interesting is to sit and think about what would have happened had the master come back and one or another of these servants who are entrusted with the talents said, Master, I went out and tried to increase this money and there was a failure of the crop or there was something it really would tell us something about the fact that failure in the market is not the equivalence of a moral failure. Mm. I just have the sense from this passage that the master would have said, you have risked. And for that, I will, you know, whatever. Of course, this is speculation, but it's, it's part of the genius. I think of the ambiguity of the parables that we can have this kind of open-ended sort of meditation that's going on or that can go on. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Uh, well, let's move on then to, because I want and, to try. And by the way, I said at the beginning, the word talent comes from this. Yes. Passage. Um, yes. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, like I said, moving on, I want to try to get to hopefully as many of these as possible, but I figured uh, from there we start on um, the two most 
well-known parables just because I figure it'd be easier for the audience to follow along because they're just the most familiar. And that would be, you know, the parable of the Good Samaritan and then uh, uh, the parable of the prodigal son. So um, what economic presuppositions uh, are in these uh, these two? The Good Samaritan is very interesting because of something you mentioned at the outset, and that is the way people can... Uh, eisegete. There, there are two technical words that we use in biblical studies. Uh, exegesis is when mm. you read something and pull out the meaning of it, and eisegesis is when you come to the text and you put your meaning into it. And I think the Good Samaritan is one where many people will eisegete it, because I've heard numerous times people, um, policymakers, saying, we need to build a society that represents the values of the Good Samaritan uh, because the Good Samaritan is a model of the welfare state. And it seems to me that any exegetical reading of this is going to reveal to us that the opposite, in sure. fact, is the case. Because what this is telling us is, first of all, the, of course, the Samaritan is marginalized from the Jewish culture. And this uh, route that he's on, the road to uh, Jericho, is a trading route and relatively isolated. Anybody who's been in Israel will see it's kind of isolated. People who were trading were, of course, carrying money or goods with them, and they were vulnerable to the kind of circumstance that this man finds himself in. Jesus juxtaposes the religious uh, piety uh, of people who walk past the man in need uh, and then uses this counterpoint of the Samaritan, the alien, so to speak, uh, who sees the man. And then we get this series of very intimate and personal. You can almost smell and taste the intimacy of this thing because it says he finds this man and he tends to his wounds with you know, what he has with him, the medicinal things that he has, the oil and the and the wine. It says that he hoists the man up on his own beast. So he has this physical contact with this man and places him on his animal, which he is using for trade, and brings him to the inn where he obviously was known by the innkeeper and leaves him there. He's got to go and go to work. <laughs> and he says, look, I, I, I'll be back in a week or whatever. Uh, you take care of him. Here's some money. If you spend more on this guy, let me know and I'll pay you on the way back. So the whole thing is this personal engagement of this Samaritan with this with human vulnerability. It seems to me that that's the lesson. That's the moral core. The heart of this story is our need to be personally engaged with human vulnerability, however it comes to us. Okay. Yeah, uh, so I was just sort of thinking, you mentioned um, the remoteness of uh, where this parable would have taken place, and it's just, uh, I can't imagine, um, like, the Holy Land just living in a place that's just like, well, you know, like, uh, Jesus walked here, or you know, uh, and here, and here, and all these things are so. Like I was in um, Memphis a couple of years ago, and I went to yeah. Gra- went and I went to Graceland again. The first time I'd been there since I was a little kid, and it just sort of struck me because like Graceland is like right next to like right next door is basically just like a just like a regular like middle class suburban neighborhood, you know, uh-huh. and it's just like. It must be, I was thinking, like, man, it must have been, like, so wild to just be, like, a regular kid, you know, from, like, a regular run-of-the-mill family. And, like, you literally live, like, your backyard adjusts Elvis, Presley, Elvis Presley's <laughs> house. You know what I mean? Like, you grew up. You've never been to Graceland. Is it it's, big? It's, um, it's not, it's, well, I mean, comparable to, co- it's not ostentatiously big. It's It's big. Uh, but it's not, um, it's not ridiculously so it's, it's, uh, um, it's not it's, no, it's, it's a stayed, it's, it's, it's weird. It's a stayed wealth, <laughs> uh, uh, that, you know, um, but, 
But it's just so funny because, I mean, nowadays, you know, most rich, famous people would never be just living, you know, outside of like a gated community or someplace that didn't. Right. Uh, and I, I, I can't. So I it was like it's just unfathomable to be like, wow, like a kid like just like grew up here next to Elvis Presley. That's weird. Um, yeah. And so I just and just think like it, it must be amazing to, to be in the Holy Land and just be like, hey, I'm living. Uh, you know, here I am, and like, look out my window, and I can see, um, you know, uh, a, a spot where where Jesus trod with, <laughs> or trod upon with the with the oh, with yeah, the no, apostles. There, there and, places and, you can go, and you can see the whole, you know, yeah, several yeah. passages from the gospel just from one balcony. Yeah, yeah. I um, mean, that that must be uh, incredible. I haven't been to the Holy Land yet, but it's it's you know, oh, you I'll, I'll, I'll get there. I'll get there one of these years. Good. Uh, good. But anyway, all right. Uh, okay, so. Just talked about the Good Samaritan. So, how about the uh, the Prodigal Son? What about that one? Prodigal Son is wonderful. You know, uh, many commentators, uh, I think, correctly uh, suggest that we should change the name uh, from the Prodigal Son to the the Parable of the Loving Father, because mm-hmm. really, I think that it really gives you the core meaning of it. the The Prodigal Son is the most vivid of the characters, there's more detail about him in this. He's more sharply cut as mm-hmm. a character. But the the lesson of the, the gospel isn't just about him. It's counterposed with his elder brother. And it's very instructive because in the middle of these two men is their father. And the father has the same attitude toward both the sons. And the sons, interestingly enough, basically have the same attitude toward the father. Namely, the sons see the father as um, a kind of piggyback, if I may. Uh, they, the, the young son takes his part of the inheritance and goes and squanders it, and then comes back. The older son, who we know much less about, just a few passages with regard to him, but what we know about him is that he's also viewing the father as the piggy bank and that he says to the father, look, I've been here laboring for you all these years and you never gave me anything to, to have with my friends, mm-hmm. uh, not even a little calf. And now you're killing the fatted calf. Uh, and he's resentful uh, for this. By the way, there's a story of a little girl in a, Sunday school class who stands up when the teacher asks who at the end of this story is the saddest character in the whole story. The little girl. <laughs> the fatty calf. The fatty calf. <laughs> <laughs> I, really, I really like that one. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> uh, but his, his attitude is similar. And mm. what's interesting is both of these sons are alienated from the father and the father tries to draw them in with the one son he goes running down the road to receive him the the prodigal and then even with the older son he has to go the father has to go outside the banquet hall where there's the the reception for the younger son's return and beckons the older son in and here's this ambiguity of the gospels again that makes it so um worthy of of probing and meditating on timeless. we never know what's that timeless timeless well and intriguing because we never know what this son decides to do yeah we're left with the story he says come on in because your brother who was dead is now alive and he's lost and has now been found we must rejoice and then it ends and you don't know the the, the the young, older son just come in and say, okay, let's let bygones be bygones and, and be a family again. Or does he stay outside? It's intriguingly, uh, and, and all of this is going on to bring in the economic dimension as a result of an inheritance dispute. I mean, the older son was not robbed of anything because uh, in Jewish law, the older son got the, the lion's share of the inheritance anyway because he had to maintain the estate and perhaps take care of right, whatever yeah. obligations of the father. Twice of whatever, uh, uh, double, the double basically the other sons. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so that's not really his complaint. 
it's more of a relational disturbance between he and and his father and now of course his younger son who we may you know again speculate what was their relationship like was a sibling rivalry rivalry beforehand mm. yeah. okay. it's a be- beautiful story and i i don't think it's well understood and it, i think a lot of uh, people especially churchgoers can get very self content with their piety and when somebody comes into the church who isn't churchified you know mm. <laughs> doesn't look like they belong uh you need to ask yourself what's my first instinct is it an embrace a welcome or is it resentment because i've been trudging along all these years and now you just pop in i mean it's the attitude people would have toward the good thief on the cross yeah who steals heaven in the last moments of his life all he says to, to Jesus is, remember me. And Jesus promises in paradise. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. These things can't be purchased. Exactly. Okay. Um, I think we got time for, uh, let's, let's do one more, a um, little bit more obscure one this time. But, uh, how about the, let's see, how about the, uh, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard? How about that one? Well, that's interesting. I mean, uh, I think union leaders could get very upset about this one because, um, you know, it, it seems uh, very unjust. And keep that word just. What is justice? Because that's the question of this uh, this parable. It's the story, of course, of uh, this uh, landowner who finds that he has um, more produce than he has people to bring in the harvest and he goes out and he hires as many people as he can he finds he still can't do it it's it's a question of the supply chain right i mean sure. <laughs> how do you go and and make sure you have enough workers yeah uh and he goes out at various stages of the day and hires them and it says at the beginning he hires them for the usual daily wage and that's what they all agree upon later in the process he doesn't say anything about the amount of money he just just come and I'll pay you whatever is, is right, whatever is just. And then the reversal of fortunes. In a lot of these uh, parables, we have this reversal of fortunes. It's, it's the same with the rich man and Lazarus, mm-hmm. where the rich man's comfortable and Lazarus is, and then Lazarus is comfortable, the rich man is in hell. Um, and so what happens here is he has those who worked last paid first, and they're given the usual daily uh, wage. And the ones who work the whole day suppose that they're going to get more because they worked more. Now, the contract was you're going to get the usual daily wage. Mm -hmm. Look how the whole thing shifts. And it shifts, and this is the economic part of it that I found so intriguing. What shifts is not the objective reality of the thing, but the subjective understanding of what's gone on and why that is so important in the economic sense is that economic reality is not that is economic exchange or the price of a thing is not predicated on how much work goes into the making of it, but what the subjective value is on the part of the one who purchases the good or the service. And that's something people can't get through their heads. And these who work the whole day can't get that through their heads. They agreed upon a wage. They were paid that wage. And if you think that I am now eisegeting and putting words into this passage, that's virtually a quote from the last part of this parable where the, uh, the landowner says, I am not being unjust. Didn't we agree upon this wage? Haven't I paid you this wage? Or... Do I not have the right to do with my property as I see fit? Mm-hmm. And then he, he brings up this whole subjectivity. Are you being jealous? Are you being envious because I am generous? Is thine evil? Is thine, is thine eye evil because I am Is generous? thine eye evil? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it's just rife with, with all kinds of economic assumptions that you wouldn't even think of it as insights into economics. Mm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, 
well, like I said, we've already gone quite a while already, so um, just um, we want to leave some things for people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't, we can't, you can't, can't put it all out there for you. Hopefully, they'll buy it and send it to their creatures. There you go. <laughs> all right. Um, so uh, one question, something I normally ask everybody that comes on the uh, podcast, but uh, what's what's the one what would you like the audience to get out of this book? What's the one thing you'd want them to take away from reading it? If I'd have to say one thing, I'd say that our existence here on this plane, on this in this world, is the anticipation of what God has for all humanity in the fullness of his kingdom. That the material world is not detached from the supernatural. It is an indicator of it. It it shows something about it. In the words of John Paul II, economic reality, entrepreneurial insight, throws back truth onto the gospel. It, it, it helps the gospel become more concrete and more relative mm-hmm. to people's lives. And that's what I would hope people would learn from this. All right, great. Well, uh, also before we go, why don't you uh, tell uh, why don't you tell everyone about the about the Acton Institute uh, and and the important work being done there because I uh, you know I'd like yes. to get that message out too. Sure. In in many ways, uh, what we've talked about now is really what the Acton Institute does, but it does it through conferences and essays and books and debates and uh, now more and more films. Uh, it can be accessed by Acton.org. And uh, 30 years ago, I founded, well, 30-something years ago, I founded it, as you mentioned, at the beginning with my friend and colleague, Chris Maurin. And uh, we have worked to um, engage in conversation seminarians of all religious denominations. It's an ecumenical um, effort. We had Muslims, evangelicals, Jews, uh, even secular people. I've spoken at Heartland uh, any number of times mm-hmm. uh, uh, and uh, been well-received there. Uh, so it, it's a, an institute that helps uncover uh, or add to good intentions sound economic thinking. That's kind of the tagline of the Acton Institute. Right, great. And then uh, one last thing. I'm, I'm sure you... Uh... <laughs> I'm sure you get uh, tired of being asked about him, but uh, your your brother Tony, how is how is he doing? <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, my brother, of course, uh, was um, star Walnuts. one of Paulie Walnuts on The Sopranos. Peter he, Paul yeah. Gaultieri, which is a wonderful Italian name. Right, yeah. <laughs> but his yeah. real name is uh, Gennaro Anthony Sirico, but he went by Tony mm-hmm. and was blessed by having a, a long career after having lived quite a uh, a real life. <laughs> uh, what he plays on The Sopranos is what he w- was like in, in real life. I, I often joked with him. I said, you know, I don't know why they're paying you. You're not acting. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but uh, no, he's he's good. He's in retirement now. He lives near his daughter in Florida. Oh, great! And uh, I just saw him the other day. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, I'm a, I'm a. I mean, he, he's been in so many other things other than The Sopranos. I mean, he was in Goodfellas. He was in uh, a lot of Woody Allen. Yeah, uh, Bullets Over Broadway. Uh, he was in Woody Cop- Allen, and he went to school. Our, our school. I'm I'm ten years younger than them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he went to our school in Brooklyn. PS ninety nine. Oh wow, so, that's incredible. And I met Woody once. My brother introduced me to him. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. I'm because uh, I'm a Jersey kid. Uh, I was born in Newark, so. Um, oh, I know most of you are. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, so so Sopranos is uh, uh, you know, it's um, big in uh, my household. Oh so. sure. <laughs> but I mean, I grew up. I grew up. On, I grew up on the shore, though. I grew up on Bradley, uh, down in Bradley Beach, and Spring oh, Springsteen territory. So. Fancy people. <laughs> uh, not quite. Uh, uh, if we would have stayed there, we would have been. And if we would have <laughs> sold that house now instead of, you know, 20 right. years ago. But, um, but yeah, so well, I'm glad to hear you're uh, 
your brother's doing well. And uh, I'll, I'll tell him you said hi. All right, great. Please, thank you. That, that's great. Thank you very much. Um, all right, yeah, well, uh, <laughs> on that more off-topic note, uh, again, the, the book is The Economics of the Parables. Uh, the author is Father Robert Sirico. Uh, wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, highly recommended for everybody out there. You don't, uh, not just for Catholics, it's uh, for everybody, not even, even, even non-believers. Um, wonderful uh, lessons uh, here uh, about the parables and um, a lot of food for thought when uh, going back and, and reading these or, or hearing them in, uh, you know, in sermons at church or, or what have you. So uh, I highly recommend it for everybody. Give it a read. Uh, make sure you go out and purchase it. So, uh, 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 Father Strico, yeah, thank you very, very much for uh, spending this time with me and talking about your book. I really appreciate it. Great to be with you, Tim. Thank you. Right, no problem. And again, if you like this podcast, please leave us a five-star review and share with your friends. And if you have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, you can reach me at uh, tbenson at heartland.org. That's a T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, go to heartland. Just go to heartland.org. And we do have our uh, Twitter account for the uh, for the podcast, so you can reach out to us there too if you haven't. So if you have any uh, questions, you know, you can send us a DM or whatnot, and uh, make sure you give us a follow there. Our uh, Twitter handle is uh, what is it? It's uh, at uh, ill books, so at i l l books. So like I said, make sure you check that out. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. So we'll uh, see you guys thank- next time. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, love you, mom. Love you, Robbie. Miss you both. Take care. Bye bye.